Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. The following program has been pre-recorded. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stefan Tubbs. I'll look back and we remember Nichelle Nichols. Of course, she played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek and through the movies and so forth. But you know what? After she was off the big screen, after she was off the television, she did not stop working with space. She was such an ambassador to NASA and so cool to think that just perhaps her character inspired little girls to want to get into space or aeronautics. This from CBS News. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Poor woman and boldly go, they did. Those familiar opening words are from the Star Trek television series from the 1960s. The show was set far into the future in the 23rd century, to be exact, but it was forward-thinking in some other important ways, from the controversial social issues it often addressed to its multiracial, multicultural cast, something unheard of in television of the time. Now a new documentary shows how that imagined diversity became reality. It's the true story of how Star Trek actress Michelle Nichols played a key role in NASA's effort to recruit both people of color and the first female astronauts more than four decades ago. Captain, I'm picking up the alien signal again. But it's coming from inside the Enterprise. She was one of Star Trek's now legendary characters. Ship to ship. Healing frequencies open, sir. Lieutenant Noyota Uhura. Can you... Played by actress Nichelle Nichols. Give me that. I'll protect you, fair lady. Sorry, neither. The no-nonsense communications officer whose very presence communicated something powerful to viewers and fans alike. I'm afraid I changed my mind. She wasn't playing some stereotypical role. She wasn't a maid or a nanny or anything. Among them, Benjamin Crump, the civil rights attorney best known for representing the families of Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Progress report. She was the third house-ranking member in a space command. I mean, you talk about every little black boy and girl running to the TV to say, hold on, that's a black woman and she's in charge? See, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. 
May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura? This is a fight for our children. Crump and director Todd Thompson, whom we met at the Johnson Space Center, are executive producers of Woman in Motion, Nichelle Nichols, Star Trek, and the remaking of NASA. The rollout of NASA's space shuttle Orbiter 101. Why don't we know the story? I think a lot of things happen in history that we just take for granted and don't pay any attention to until it's time to take, pay attention to it. And Michelle's story in particular is so monumental that I think deserves our attention, deserves our respect. Star Trek wasn't a big hit its first year on the air. Nichols was actually planning to leave the show to pursue a career on Broadway. That is, until she met someone else very conscious of the impact she was having. It was civil rights icon, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., a devout Trekkie, who told Nichols Star Trek was the only TV show he'd watch with his children and pleaded with her to stay aboard the Starship Enterprise. He said, you don't understand the effect that you are having, not only on black people, not only on young women, but on everybody. And stay, she did, making even more history with American television's first interracial kiss. Enterprise. This growing fame would soon transport her from a fictional space program to the real thing. Two, one. NASA was coming off the Apollo program. They were gearing up for this new exciting thing called the Space Shuttle program. And they, they needed a different class of astronauts instead of the traditional test pilot. So because they couldn't of, find any. They, they couldn't find any, but mostly because, you know, who would have thought that all the people working at NASA were huge Star Trek fans for obvious reasons. So NASA started showing up at the Star Trek conventions as well. She gave a speech to NASA because of Lieutenant Uhura and the success of Star Trek. And when she looked out in the audience, she said she didn't see any women. She didn't see any minorities, and so she said, Where are my people? And I meant that then, and I mean it now. But there was one person in that room who was really listening in. Yeah, it was the head of NASA, and so they came, and they met with her, and they challenged her. They said, you know, literally, will you help us? Reluctant at first, Nichols accepted the challenge, forming the company Women in Motion and embarking upon a year-long mission to change the face of NASA. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. She shot this recruitment film here at the Space Center, seeking astronauts for the shuttle program. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind. Minorities and women alike. This is your NASA. And she literally went to every major city around the country, every historically black college and university. And what she said, NASA needs you. History needs you. And soon enough, Star Trek's fantasy prediction of a more diverse future took a step closer to reality. Thanks to Nichols, 8,000 people applied to NASA's 1978 astronaut class. In all, 35 new recruits were chosen, including for the first time, six women and four people of color.
all six of the women that were recruited during that 1978 class and every single one of them would be high five in Nichelle and, you know, giving their thanks to her for what she did. Nicole Stott is a retired shuttle astronaut. She says Nichols brought an inspiring seriousness and credibility to the effort. She didn't want to be this mascot for NASA. She wanted to be a strong, independent, powerful voice for this population that hadn't been represented by NASA yet, so that it would be believable. And I think that's what those women would say, is that it was believable. And they were encouraged to pick up the pen and fill out the application. Now 88 years old, Nichols is out of the public eye. But in interviews for the documentary, she recalled that time when she was as determined as the character she played to help women and people of color cross a final frontier of opportunity. Well, this might sound a little corny, but it felt like my children and my heart, it pounded. And I knew the world will never be the same again. We would go on to great heights. And to think that I had the slightest thing to do with it. <sighs> Makes me know that all things good are possible. Again, that from CBS News. An inspiration, perhaps to so many little girls that got into space or aeronautics because of Nichelle Nichols' role as Lieutenant Uhura. For the first time in our history, in the history of the United States Marine Corps, a black man has become a four-star general. Lieutenant General Michael Langley has been a Marine more than 35 years, and now he's expected to make military history. If the Senate confirms him, Langley will become the first black four-star general in the 246-year history of the Marine Corps. President Biden nominated him to be the commander of U.S. of U.S. Africa Command and oversee nearly 6,000 U.S. troops in Africa. Langley is a graduate of UT Arlington and Western Hills High School in Fort Worth. He joined the Marines in 1985. Yesterday, Langley recognized his family who joined him for the confirmation hearing, including his sister from Keller and father and stepmother from Fort Worth. His father also served, dedicating 25 years to the Air Force. As many nominees have said in testimony before me, military families formed a bedrock upon which our joint force readiness stands. My family is no different. My family is a personal example and continual encouragement have been a constant source of strength for me. Without their support, I would not be here today. The Council on Foreign Relations says more than 80 percent of high-ranking U.S. military officers are white. As of last year, Langley was one of only six black generals in the Marines. And General Langley has commanded at every level, serving in Afghanistan, Somalia and Japan. He's also held top jobs within the Pentagon and led U.S. forces in Europe and Africa. So quite the resume. We'll continue to follow his progress and perhaps have more at a later date right here on the program. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephan Tubbs. Glad you're with us, and we're midway through the program. A father proud of 
his service and proud of his family, most certainly, is now running for United States Congress. Eric Odlin stopped by the regular program last week. Welcome, brother. Um, thank you for coming in. Great to be with you. Thank you. You bet. I, I told you off the air, and I will say on the air for, for our friends listening, uh, probably I'll, I'll ask you questions, and you're like, God, I wish you wouldn't have asked me that because I've got to then talk about myself. But I salute you. Uh, West Point grad. Um, you have a beautiful family. I haven't Thank been you. stalking you. Okay. <laughs> I just, you know, try to do a little bit. But why do you want to be, wh- why have you done this to your family? <laughs> I'm kidding. But look, it's a family. It's a fair question. It, it's it is. a family we're, deal. We're, we're in this together. In fact, my wife's been through a combat deployment when I was in Afghanistan. It wasn't long after we were married. It was before kids. But she's an army brat. We're both, we both grew up in army families. And for us, this is a combat deployment. This is this is a call of duty. It does require the entire family. We love this country. We, we grew up in patriotic families, and we think we're in a time of crisis. And at the end of the day, our children's future is at stake. It's being eclipsed by this progressive road, which is destroying this country, which is r- ruining opportunity here in this country. And I, I did not design my life to run for office, Stefan. I, I didn't envision doing this. I'd left my very lucrative corporate career in the oil and natural gas industry. I was working on a PhD to become a counselor to work with veterans and trauma victims. Wow. And I just, in many ways, woke up to the crisis and started to recognize that I had to stand up and do something. And through a lot of prayer and reflection was, was led to this path and, uh, in many ways, I, I had no political connections when I began this. I'm now top line on the ballot. I believe I'm the front runner in this race for District 7. And I, I am doing this as an act of service. This is, this is wanting to serve my country again by entering this arena. But in many ways, I don't, I don't relish politics. I don't relish the nastiness and the vitriol that comes with it. But it's worth doing. And for your audience out there, this is a time that we all have to stand up and do our part because we're in a generational crisis. This is significant. I absolutely agree. Eric Odland, I will never say his name incorrectly (laughs) again. He's running for Congress in Colorado's 7th Congressional District. Give me, I got a billion questions for you, but just so people, give us in general terms, what is your district, the makeup, where it is, et cetera? So it is eight counties. It's Broomfield, Jefferson, Park, Teller, Lake, Chafee, Fremont, and Custer. So other than that, it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. All the way from Broomfield at the, at the tip in the north, all the way down to Westcliff or Custer County. So it takes about three hours to drive from north to south. And then it goes all the way out west to Leadville. So Lake County, and then it's uh, it's diverse because you have the Denver Metro of Jefferson and Broomfield, and then you have the mountain counties, and I live in Pine, so I live up in the mountains on the edge of Jefferson and beautiful. Park in a very beautiful God, spot. God, I love it up there. It's, I don't want to talk about it too much because you don't want anybody else moving up there, right? <laughs> no, we don't want anyone else moving up there, right. but we don't want to leave. But, yeah. but So this is a tour of duty. I go off to Washington. I've got to leave beautiful pine Colorado, but it's worth doing. Yeah. Let me ask you, you kind of intimated a little bit that, that, you know what, you get into politics, you do. Absolutely. I've never done it. I probably never will, but you, I can only imagine how much. I thought you were running for mayor. Hey, that was (laughs) funny. I should have, except I would have had to move. (laughs) Look, you're in pine. It must be easy for you to say, oh, just move back to Denver. Listen, it's nothing like uh, like it used to be. I want to talk about crime and and your stance on what do we do, et cetera. 
but you went, you, you kind of hinted at the negativity. Have you, and see, I would think you were almost in, and forgive me, I can't think of any other way to say it, like a protected class almost. Like, how could anybody, this guy was boots on the ground, uh, West Point grad, Iraq, Afghanistan. I know, brother, you don't walk on water, but have you had the negative, even with your background of doing something? You never had to serve this country. Choose well, your words carefully. I mean, there, there's not a lot to attack me on. I have a very clean slate. I know people have tried to dig up dirt. That's just the nature of this business. Sure. There's really not any dirt you can find. But but people will make stuff up. Even Republicans will. I've heard disinformation, uh, and I've been called a rhino. Oh, there we go. Uh, you know, those, those kind of terms, which isn't based in any truth or fact. No, it's just if they don't like you. That's right. I mean, I've been called a Klansman, for God's sake. <laughs> and I'm not running for mayor of Denver. Um, I guess you're right. It's just it's 2022. People will, will come at you. They'll say things, even if they know it's not true. God, I was in... Recently, you know, social media back and forth with you have no idea what you're talking about. But if people want to try to take you down, they will tell me how this military thing, if you will. How does how does that help you in a position like you're trying to seek? Well, it's significant. And McCarthy has said this numerous times. He's looking at three classes of candidates to f- to flip contested seats like this because they saw the success in 2020. It's women, minorities, and veterans. I'm the only veteran in this race. I'm, I'm a combat veteran. Both my tours were combat tours. I was a tank platoon leader in Iraq, commanded a striker reconnaissance unit in Afghanistan, secured the border crossing point between Afghanistan and Pakistan and Kandahar District. I know a bit about securing the border. We also trained the Afghan border police. But, but veterans, there's a, there's a significant veteran population in District 7, especially in the mountain counties. And it's an indication of service to this country. I grew up wanting to go to West Point. I started that process in middle school. It's it's significant, and it takes everything to get accepted. Uh, didn't hurt that my dad was a major general, of course. No, that wouldn't hurt, but hurt. at the end of the day, but right, you still had to walk through the door. So to I speak. had to walk through the door. 9-11 happened when I was a senior, so we knew we were going to war. But I set off to serve my country before 9-11 happened. Because that was that was virtue in my family. That was a high calling, and I'm fulfilled by being of service by doing by doing my duty. That's never left me. And so veterans have taken the oath to support and defend the Constitution. They've demonstrated that through great sacrifice by putting their lives on the line. And most other people can't say that. Most other politicians, it's rhetoric. They're well, voting. Look, you know this. They're voting to send guys like you and 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 women out there to go to war. And I, I, I was telling you off there, you know, I had a chance just a blip of time in 06 and 2010 to be embedded with fourth ID in Iraq twice. And I'm telling you what, I came back and I felt, Eric, that every single member of Congress needs to be there at least as long as I was two weeks at a time before you have any right to send anybody else's kid to war. Absolutely. I deployed to Iraq with 4th ID, by the way, from nice. 2003 to 2004. Absolutely. We need more combat veterans who've seen the cost of war, seen the trauma, experienced it, because then they're judicious with the use of force. Acts of war require American sons of daughter and daughters, and there are long-lasting consequences to, to the use of violence and uh, 
and war altogether. Right. I am not a war hawk, Stefan. Yeah. I'm not a war hawk at all. And so I think I look at situations like the Ukraine through a lens of having seen extensive civilian casualties and collateral damage and and enemy KIA and, and friendly KIA. And so I'm I'm very careful and I want to make sure we articulate American interests. Amen always before we get entangled in more conflict yeah i want to give uh, your website out and it is don't call him adland <laughs> it's oddland a a d l a n d for colorado.com oddland for f-o-r colorado.com by the way there are some pol- and i'm not saying anybody that's been on this show but some pol- uh, political uh, those with aspirations have really crappy websites yours is awesome Thank I'm you. Just telling you, very, very good money well spent, or and whoever I, that I is. I wrote all the content on there. Right. By the way, I didn't have a, some people have accused me of having a consultant, folks. I wrote that myself, and I wrote it not to align with any particular person or party. Though I'm conservative and I'm a, I'm a Republican, I wrote those because those are what I believe. And now we filled it out, so you can be. very It's a great clear. website, seriously, friends. Uh, visit it. Oddland for F O R Colorado dot com. United States Army captain, he's sacrificed, and now he wants to continue to serve in the United States Congress. Eric Odland, running in CD7. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephan Tubbs. For those of us connected with the American Veterans Show, we certainly hope you make us a habit on every Sunday at noon. And don't forget to visit the new and improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. And you can hear past episodes. The podcasts are right there, just a few clicks away. We continue the rest of the program looking at baseball players who have served their country. But what about if you served, but you were a spy? More from CBS News. Baseball may just be a sport, but one baseball player may have helped save the world. Mo Berg was an accomplished baseball player for 15 years in the 30s and 40s, but he was also a spy in World War II. Before the CIA, there was an organization called the OSS, and Mo Berg was its star. His life is the focus of a new documentary called The Spy Behind Home Plate. And recently I asked filmmaker Aviva Kempner if Mo Berg was the real-life James Bond. He was in the OSS, and people don't know, but will be is in the film that the creator of James Bond, Ian Fleming, actually helped while Bill Donovan developed the whole plan for the OSS. It's a couple scenes in the movie. So the whole aspect of the OSS that would put men and women in, safe crackers, Ivy League people, and someone with brain and brawn like Mo Berg, also created in the input by Ian Fleming, who created James Bond. The OSS, by the way, was the precursor to the CIA, and we didn't have a spy system back then. So Moberg was was kind of like something unique. He spoke 10 languages. He had a law degree, charismatic, a baseball player, a perfect cover to travel the world. And he did just that 
promoting baseball alongside some of the greats like Babe Ruth. Well, you know, the joke was he spoke 10, maybe 12 languages, but couldn't hit in any of them. <laughs> but actually, in the 15 years he played, he hit 243, which is a pretty good utility player. And when you talk about Babe Ruth, in 1934, there was a very famous trip of an all-star team, except for Mo, he was an all-star, but it was Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Lefty Gomez, Lou Gehrig, Charlie Gehringer, all went to Tokyo under the guise of a goodwill trip, but I think it was really America's last chance to sort of reach out to Japan. And when Mo was there, he did a certain clandestine filming of the Tokyo skyline on, I think, his own volition. But you have to see the film to see if he didn't think he had maybe some others encouraging him to do it. And this was footage used later in the Doolittle Raid. And so that footage was used by the U.S. military at some point. Well, to scope out, you know, exactly what the skylight, skyline looked like. And they also asked for footage because Lefty Gomez and Jimmy Fox were also taking footage. So uh, the trip may, in a way, help prepare for that. Well, that's the thing is I think that there are a lot of baseball Hall of Famers that have were rightly credited with their contributions to World War II. But I would say that Mo Berg's contributions, as clandestine as they were, may have been as, if not more, impactful. Well, his role was as a, a spy for nuclear espionage. We were terrified. America was terrified in the Allies. The Germans had the capability to also create a nuclear bomb. We already had started the Manhattan Project. But we didn't know this outstanding physicist who would have had the brains and knowledge to do it, named Heisenberg, Mo was sent on this a clandestine mission to go hear him talk to see and also talk to him after uh, his lecture to see if there was any way the Germans were creating the nuclear bomb because you know it was a race until the end although the final irony was that the German physicists who knew most about how to create a bomb were Jewish and already like Einstein already had left Germany but we still didn't know for sure and Mo was the one that that really secured the knowledge and, you know, sort of did the spying to find out what Heisenberg knew, knew by going to Zurich, pretending he was uh, a Swiss student, and he had a cyanide in one pocket and a gun in another pocket. Werner Heisenberg, uh, the pioneer of quantum mechanics, right. might have been one of the few men in the world that could have taken that fission technology and created a, an atomic bomb. And it was really up to Mo to determine whether or not that was possible. So you had to get in there, pretend to be someone else, be able to speak another language, and have the knowledge to identify the charts as whether or not he was telling the truth, whether or not the Germans were even close to an right. A-bomb. And he had briefed himself. I mean, he had the type of brain that could absorb everything from physics to Sanskrit. So he, he was exactly the right person at the right time for us to use. You tell stories that are the untold stories, more or less, of Jewish heroes right. and their contribution to history. Why did Moberg's story gather your attention as, as great as it did? Well, I grew up in Detroit always hearing about Hank Greenberg. He was my father's hero. And the day I, uh, in hearing about how he almost broke Braver's record and didn't play baseball on Yom Kippur. And the day Hank died, I knew I had to do the film on Hank Greenberg. Mo presented himself another way. Uh, someone who had been a minor funder of my other films said to me one day, Aviva, do a film about Sid Luckman, who was the Jewish 
football player. And I said, Bill, I don't like football. And he says, what about Barney Ross? And I said, uh, I, I hate boxing more, a Jewish boxer. But when he said, Mo Berg, I love baseball. And I said, I've got to do it. Here we combine, you know, again, the golden age of baseball, which I'm fixated on. Uh, someone who used his cleverness and his wit and also his knowledge of languages to spy on the Germans. And I don't think people know enough about the Manhattan Project because it was so secret, but sort of the spies that went along with it. And it's just great to be able to tell the story of Mo Berg, who sacrificed not only his life, but also his professional baseball coaching career to go off and spy for us. Sounds like a great story until you actually have to go in there and do the research. And now you're talking about someone that passed away 50 years ago, didn't leave any children behind. In the 30s and 40s, any kind of documentation for his would have been burned up, erased, eliminated. And on top of that, he was literally a spy. So how do you do the research? How difficult was it to research this? Well, I benefited from three things. One is the fact that 30 years ago, two filmmakers, Neil Goldstein and Jerry Feldman, were trying to make a film on Mo and film people like Don. DiMaggio, people Mo played with, and like William Colby, people who were in the OSS or spied with him. And I was able to process those interviews and use them in the film. Second of all, the OSS documents have been declassified, so they're more accessible. But third of all, even though Mo didn't marry his siblings, um, kept a lot of his documents and between the Columbia Law Library, Princeton Library, New York Public Library, Cooperstown, his cousin Erwin Berg, I, I assure you there's a lot more pictures in libraries. Um, there's so many scenes in the film that show him at different times, not so much talking, but him in certain places. And he's always sort of like the chameleon in the back. Huh. And uh, I think that's a lot what Mo was. He was sort of observing the scene and then figuring out what could be done cleverly to get to the next step. And this was a time when anti-Semitism was rampant. He was one of the first Jewish people to actually uh, uh, participate in an Ivy League school, as a matter of fact. Um, but that's actually where he faced the anti-Semitism. At Princeton, there was this whole thing about Jews were called Hebrews, couldn't uh, participate in the dining clubs. Although since he was a star in the f baseball team, they did let him be there, but they wouldn't let others there. In a way... Mo did not face the anti-Semitism that I saw evident in making the Hank Greenberg film, because every time Hank went up to bat, there was someone on the opposing team or in the stands yelling at him. But still, Mo had a very restrictive time at Princeton because he was Jewish. Do you think that his motives were driven by his love for his heritage or his love for his country? I think Mo was... Um, I think Mo's motive to spy for the U.S. was both based on the fact of what he knew Nazism was about and how especially it affected his people. But most of all, it was because he was a proud American. He was the son of immigrants. And by the way, we talk about immigrants shouldn't be let in this country. Do you know who made the best spies during World War II for us? The ones who knew the languages of Europe of course. or, of course, Asia. The ones who knew the customs, the clothing. You know, I, I just really... I realized in making this film how important immigrants are to, God forbid, you know, right now we worry about the nuclear mm. power of North, North Korea, of the Middle East, of, of Russia. Who are the spies now? Well, the, uh, the documentary is called The Spy Behind Home Plate. Uh, filmmaker Aviva Kempner, 
Thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. And it's open now in the greater New York area as of this weekend. And if you want to find out where else in the country it is, you can go to spybehindhomeplate.org. Interesting story from CBS News. We'll wrap up the program with, again, a look at those baseball players who put their young lives to the side as far as their baseball careers because they served their country. Coming up, you're going to hear from one of my all-time baseball heroes, and I got to meet him in person once. Colonel Jerry Coleman, United States Marine Corps, both in World War II and in Korea. We'll talk about that coming up next as we wrap up the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. We wrap up the American Veterans Show with a couple more pieces on Major League Baseball players that paused their career during World War II. And perhaps no one epitomizes an athlete who put things on hold when his country needed him most. That man, Ted Williams, he had just won the Triple Crown in 1942. He enrolled in Naval Flight School in November. The great hitter soon developed into a great pilot. And perhaps surprisingly, the ornery star took to the military life like a natural. The truth is he was a very structured person and in fact thrived on being structured. He never had a problem with anybody over him, never had a problem with an officer. Ted came there to Chapel Hill and we all standing around watching it to pre-flight. And he just electrified everything he did. Coordination, you know, is, is important in flying. you got to get the feel of the airplane, and he had that damn cold. Williams spent three years in the service, eventually becoming a flight school instructor. By the time he returned to the Red Sox in 1946, he was a more mature 27 years old. And the new, friendlier Ted Williams was a hit with the Boston press and fans alike. After the season, Williams was awarded his first MVP. And in the years to come would win another, as well as a second Triple Crown and four more batting titles. Williams remained comfortable, though, in the batter's box, winning his second MVP award in 1949. But soon, his career was again interrupted by war, as the U.S. entered the conflict in Korea. A bunch of time had passed since World War II, and Ted Williams hadn't flown one plane since he left the service. And now they're called to fly jets that, that none of them knew how to fly. After spending nearly the entire 1952 season retraining in flight school, Williams landed for duty in Korea in February 1953. Williams began flying combat missions just after his arrival. And in one of his first runs, his plane found enemy fire. So I'm up about 18,000 feet now, and I felt like any minute I'm gonna have to bail out of this son of a bitch. So all of a sudden, this plane right behind me, little Lieutenant Hawkins, young kid, he led me back to field, and in the meantime, he's calling in, telling that, you know, he has a plane with him, that's Smoking. All the Marines are in the air. Big explosion in the plane. And all this fire and smoke was underneath me, see. I didn't have my brakes, didn't have my wheels down. 
and I had nothing to slow me down. All I'm thinking about is getting on the deck, and I never will forget. As I was coming in, I'm on fire. 30 feet of fire going up behind my ass, see? And I hit the runway, and I skidded one mile up the runway. I really coming in fast. I'm saying to myself, when is this dirty son of a bitch going to stop? That's all I said. You, when is this dirty son of a bitch? And if I ever prayed in my life, the only goddamn thing I said, well, there's a goddamn Christ. It's the time old Teddy Ballgame needs you. But he landed on the stomach of the plane. Having completed serving his country for the second time in the Marine Air Corps, Ted Williams once again prepares to return to play baseball. Ted, I understand that your future address is Fenway Park, is that correct? Well, as of now, that's where I'm scheduled to go, Colonel. I uh, plan on being up there tomorrow, and uh, needless to say, I'm, I'm anxious to see if I can still hit. That from PBS. And as we wrap up with our look at these heroes, baseball players, but great American patriots first, we talk about one of my heroes, the longtime San Diego Padres broadcaster Jerry Coleman. Had a chance to meet him one time, and it was just outstanding. Called him Colonel because he was. Jerry Coleman would manage the San Diego Padres for one year. He was a broadcaster. They wanted him back uh, on the field to maybe see if they could turn things around. He couldn't. So he goes back up to the broadcast booth. But he was an MVP in the World Series, a star second baseman for the New York Yankees. Jerry Coleman passed away several years ago. But what a patriot. No, I was dumb enough to think I'd give up these two years and be right back where I was. I never came back to what I was which doesn't bother me in the least, I'll be very honest with you. But basically, I was always proud to be a Marine Naval Aviator, and uh, frankly, uh, it never entered my mind to think that I wasn't going to be as good as I was before. I found out later that I wasn't as good as I was before. But uh, those are the kinds of things. I mean, you, you, you play baseball against your country, it's not a contest. Your country comes first, period. John... You actually put up good numbers with uh, Chicago when you, when you came out of the war. True. Um, in terms of the opportunities presented to you, obviously baseball, Major League Baseball, was just integrating at that point in time. Did a door just not open for you? Not really. Uh, I'm trying to think back during that time when Jackie went in. It, it, was, it was hard, and everybody was asking whether you think Jackie would make it. I said, sure, I think he's going to make it because Jack, could, he could take the pressure. He could withstand the pressure and he could, he could do a lot of things. And uh, I think if I had the uh, same opportunity to do, I'd do the same thing Jack did. I, I would get angry, but I would turn up the cheek and go ahead on and then not try to uh, intimidate anybody or cause trouble. Cause that was a no-no. When Brad Ricky hired him, he said, Jack, you, you have to do and say no a lot of things, and he did. And I would do the same thing. Yeah, I haven't analyzed how the Bible would, what went on. That was life. I understood, like I said, I understood where life was going, and I accepted it. And today, it has changed a lot, but I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. Baseball stars that put their careers on hold for both World War II and Korea, and how about Jerry Coleman and Ted Williams? Ted Williams, the more 
maybe recognizable name, but both of those incredible baseball players not only served in World War II, but Korea as well. Hope you've enjoyed that. And we wrap up the program. The United Launch Alliance has a new atlas. Let's take a listen. Generating a combined liftoff thrust of 1.5 million pounds, the RD-180 engine and two solid rocket boosters ignite to start ULA's Atlas V rocket on its trip to orbit. Shortly after liftoff, Atlas begins a pitchover to attain the proper flight path while minimizing the dynamic pressure the rocket experiences during flight. Then, Atlas V reaches Mach 1, the speed of sound. Within the next two minutes of first stage flight, the Atlas V rocket will more than triple its velocity following jettison of the two Gem 63 solid rocket boosters. Fighting against the force of gravity, the nearly one million pound rocket depletes the majority of its propellant. The main engine then shuts down, followed by release of the booster stage. The rocket now weighs a little more than 7% of what it did at liftoff. To deliver Sibir's GO6 to orbit, Centaur will perform three engine burns. Fueled by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, the first burn takes the spacecraft orbital, reaching a LEO parking orbit. Then, once the rocket has climbed above the densest part of Earth's atmosphere, the payload fairing is jettisoned. After the first main engine cutoff, Centaur coasts around the destination argument, or celestial longitude. The second burn then kicks the trajectory onto a geosynchronous transfer orbit with a maximum altitude in the geo belt. Following a multi-hour coast, Centaur comes alive for a final burn as it prepares to release the Sibir spacecraft into a highly customized, enhanced, high-energy GTO orbit. Nearing end of mission, Centaur executes a guidance-commanded shutdown to complete the final burn, a capability which ensures precise orbit injection. More than three hours after liftoff, Centaur releases the sixth Sibir's Geo satellite for the United States Space Force, providing early missile warning detection. Always love space and will continue to follow, and of course, a huge Colorado connection with our space corridor and what ULA does. That wraps up this week. Who knows what kind of look we'll take uh, from veterans who have done other things in their life. And we certainly appreciate you listening here on the American Veteran Show. For our incredible producer, Michael Arpaio, Stefan Tubbs wishing you a great week ahead. Join us for the regular program tomorrow and Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 p.m. Have a great week and remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Ah, ho, ho, ho. Hey, what's wrong, Santa? Well, it's these elves. The new ones all feel entitled. They don't want to work their way up the ladder. In fact, they hardly want to work at all. Then there's those social justice elves. They keep pointing out everyone's differences, dividing the elves and getting them all riled up. And don't get me started about the reindeer rights elves. 
The shop floor just isn't the happy little place it used to be. We should have used Red Balloon. That's right, Santa. RedBalloon.Work is America's woke-free job board. Every day, we help good companies find reliable, motivated job seekers without all the woke nonsense. And our new Red Balloon Recruiter Service is turning traditional corporate recruiting on its head, delivering high-quality employees for a fraction of the price. Give yourself a Christmas gift and post your jobs on RedBalloon.Work today. And use promo code SALEM to get 10% off your first month's job posting. Because life's too short for a bad hire. 